Two Designers Walk Into a Bar is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information about our show or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. <laughs> you want to read that through one more time? Yeah, like with without all the stuttering. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Porky, you want to read that through one more time? <laughs> okay, I'll do this one straight. Hey everyone, it's Elliot. And Todd. Welcome to Two Designers Walk Into a Bar, an ongoing conversation about pop culture and iconic design. Today we're going to take a step back in time and into a bar from the past as we rub elbows with the beats. We may be in Greenwich Village. We could be in North Beach. Wherever our bar is for you, it's home to the hippest cats and the coolest kittens. So ask the bartender for some reasonably priced Chianti, wave the cigarette smoke away from your face, and dig the crazy scene right alongside us here in the bar. Okay, Todd. So the last time when we talked, when we we were jumping into our our episode on illustration, we were winding the clock back to 1910. So this was well before the beats were a thing. I'm sure listeners were confused. You were probably confused. I was. But I was not surprised because I've seems to me you're confused a lot. Because you know me well, and you know I confuse these. <laughs> That's true. But I learned who Mary Lou Williams was and uh, her massive influence on Absolutely. music. Absolutely. And, uh, evidently, album cover design. Absolutely. So today, I want to talk about somebody who I have a feeling you definitely have heard of. And okay. I think you could probably start humming some of the music if, uh, if I... If I were, you know, if money were on the table, but you know me, okay, and I'm not okay. putting any money on the table. I know, yeah. I, I'm the guy who takes money off the table. That's right. Especially I, when no it's it's, okay. it's left uh, for other people as tips. <laughs> I enjoy taking <laughs> that money. Tell, don't oh. don't give away our secrets. We've we'll oh, never been oh, invited geez. back to oh, a bar. Oh yeah, that's true. Sorry, uh, we'll we'll delete that in the edit. Okay. okay yeah. Make sure we delete that. I'm gonna drop us into smack dab. In the middle of everything that was going on in beat era uh, history, and that would be 1959. Okay. All right. Okay. Now I want to start, as has been our pattern, to help set the stage. I want to read a very quick article excerpt, and I found a wonderful article about drum roll. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Dave Brubeck and the album Time Out. All right. Pretty historical. 
uh, iconic. I mean, truly okay. a, iconic. A pin in time. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, so to speak. Nice pun. Oh, look at that. <laughs> All right. I want to jump in and I want to read an excerpt of an article from this excellent website I found called The Music Aficionado. And in doing my research, I couldn't actually figure out who the author is to give credit. But if you look up... Um, on Google or your search engine of choice, the music aficionado, you can read this full article. So it is the summer of 1959, and jazz enthusiasts are gathered at the Music Inn, a music venue in the heart of the pastoral Berkshire region in western Massachusetts. The event is the Jazz Roundtable, a series of talks and discussions about music, founded by Professor Marshall Stearns in the early 1950s. Dr. Willis James is on the stage, demonstrating an African chant. James is an authority of African folk songs and their connection to the tradition of jazz. At the end of his performance, he asks the audience, quote, Can any of you tell me what time signature that was in? Unquote. The audience, including notable musicians of that era, is silent. Uh. James follows, quote, That was an American work song. It was in 5-4 time, and the Dave Brubeck Quartet is on the right track. Oh. <laughs> and Dave Brubeck was in the audience. So he was given a shout-out to Dave Brubeck and his quartet by saying this um, African uh, folk song uh, is, uh, is intricate and is highly influential, and Brubeck is, is doing his thing. Yes, yeah, and he he's keying in on sort of these these bigger themes, these bigger rhythms, these bigger cadences, right? Got it, right? Yeah, it's sort of a little more exotic, the um, the the hipper stuff of jazz. So let's talk a little bit about Dave Brubeck. Who was he? Where did he come from? Yeah, and we could be here the rest of the day talking about him. He actually is one of my favorite jazz musicians. So he was a jazz pianist and a composer from California who is regarded as the father of cool jazz. Okay. Yeah, so you're I know your next question. Yeah. Can I ask it for you? Please. What's cool jazz? Elliot, so what's, what's cool, cool jazz? jazz? <laughs> We've heard about hot jazz. We in have. Previous that was episodes. in the manifesto, right? That was I in the Blue know, manifesto. Yeah, I want to know what yeah, is it cool or is it hot? What is it? Well, it all depends on your perspective or maybe your location. I've heard about bips and bops. Well, you know, I mean, that. well, I'm the bop, remember? Oh, that's right. We've talked about bebop. We've talked about hard bop and the like. So all that came from the East Coast. That came out of places like New York, came out of these clubs in Harlem and places Mm -hmm. like that we've been talking Mm -hmm. about. So cool jazz is West Coast. Cool jazz is more mellow. It's more lightweight. It's less frenetic and less complex. It has more relaxed tempos. Okay. All right. So that provides this contrast. Just like New York and L.A. aren't the same places, the jazz being produced in each location is in the same place. Todd? Makes sense. Dare I say we're actually talking about another scene. Oh, I do love a scene. You do. You love making a scene sometimes, too, right? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Look in the mirror yourself. <laughs> 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 Takes a scene maker to know a scene. You know maker. what? Now that I th- all the places I've been kicked out of, as I remember, you were in tow. <laughs> like yeah, it was, yeah, it wasn't exactly. just me being shown the door. 
<laughs> but anyway, back to Dave. So he played jazz while in the Army during World War II, and that actually kept him out of combat. He ended up being an, an entertainer. And he went on to form the Dave Brubeck Quartet in 1951. So before we go any further, I feel the need to talk about Dave Brubeck and the era he found himself in. So 1951, post-World War II, as we've talked about before, we certainly talked about with, with Kerouac and some mm-hmm. of these guys running around New York and what they were seeing and, and why they were attracted to jazz. America at this point in time was a very, very segregated place. Jim Crow was still going on. Yeah. Dave Brubeck didn't care about any of that. He wanted to work with talented people. Mm -hmm. And so his quartet was racially diverse. Even during the war, even when there was segregation in the military, he wanted to have um, the best people he could work with. Yeah. We've got this West Coast thing happening. There's diversity. You've got this optimism coming out of the war, as we've talked about before. This is getting into the Leave it to Beaver era. The suburbs are exploding, right? Everybody's owning a car, the GI Bill. There's this prosperity. So part of this, one of the things that was going on, the U.S. State Department continues to sponsor Dave Brubeck touring kind of goodwill, post-World War II goodwill, right? So he's touring as a representative, he and his band are touring as representatives of the U.S., and they're going around the world. So they, while they're sharing their jazz music overseas in places like Turkey, Poland, India, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Iran, and Iraq, they're sharing music with him too. I mean, if you're a music fan, you don't just want to play music. You naturally want to be exposed to other music. Oh, okay. So that that can't help but inspire and influence your own output, right? Do you think that that's where um, his exotic um, time signatures and rhythms may have deepened in some of those um, the, the those countries that have really strong traditional folk songs? Mm-hmm. Not African, like the guy, the the lecturer mentioned African, but I mean, there certainly is some strong folk songs in those other countries too. Sure, yeah. Apparently one of the places, Turkey, which I mentioned, he had encountered some street musicians in Turkey and they were playing some music, these, again, traditional songs and these very odd time signatures. And his band was totally digging on that. And so they really were like, huh, this is interesting. Okay. So they wanted to go back and they wanted to, to try some of that. So this is 1958. So they come back to the U.S. And so he's he's on a label. He's on Columbia Records. We talked about some of these smaller labels before. Blue Note was pretty small. Ash Records, super tiny, right? So Columbia is one of the big players because Columbia Records, of course, there was the Columbia Broadcast System. This is you yeah. know, before TV or during the, 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 you know, baby television. But, you know, they had this radio empire. So yeah. uh, records, they had studios in New York. So this is natural that he would have this arrangement with a label. So he comes back and, uh, well, I, I almost feel the need, before we jump into that, I guarantee that even if listeners are not jazz fans, I know everyone listening to this might be a design fan or might like the beats, but you might not like jazz. Hell, you might not even like Todd and I. (laughs) We can't blame you for that. (laughs) But um, even if you are not uh, a fan of jazz, you will know the song Take Five. That's the lead 
instrumental lead single Mm -hmm. it's iconic i mean the whole Mm -hmm. album is iconic and again like we talked about a minute ago it's largely due to these oddball time signatures that somehow just work okay Mm -hmm. so they come back and they're like we want to do this album we've we've heard these musicians from the places that we've been touring we want to record this album and so columbia records listens to the album and they're like this is great. Like, we love this album. But, of course, manufacturing and marketing and distributing an album costs money, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Not a big market for uh, Sri Lankan jazz, huh? <laughs> right. <In the> US. <laughs> right. So they were really, you know, even though they were recording jazz, they were still sort of conservative um, in terms of their business model, right? They don't want to throw uh-huh, good uh-huh. money after bad. So they're excited to release this album, but they're afraid the public, the listening public, just wouldn't get it. So what had to happen to get this album out, right? We mentioned a minute ago, this is an iconic album. Everybody knows this album. So the label was like, I don't, I don't know. So what Brubeck and company had to do, they had to cut a deal with Columbia, and they had to record a traditional album that they released before Time Out to try uh-huh. to get the money so that even if Time Out bombed, this traditional album would have sold so well because it's what the people want, that it was enough of a hedge that, if nothing else, Brubeck would be releasing the album he wanted so he'd be happy, you know, he wouldn't be upset with the label, and the label wouldn't, you know, be going in the hole with this crazy album with these odd time signatures, whatever. So um, (laughs) they needn't have bothered to record this traditional album because that album by comparison, turned out to be a flop. <laughs> the okay. traditional album. like People really didn't want that one. And also, to make matters worse, you know, we talked a little bit about um, critics when we talked about Jack Kerouac and right, when we talked right. about Jackson Pollock, that the critics sometimes don't always get it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the, sometimes mm-hmm. they're almost too smart for their own good. This is another one of those cases. So this album comes out, and the music critics hate it. But good news, the public loves it. Time Out? You mean the album Time Out? They hated it? Okay. Yes, yes, yes. So, yeah, they hated Time Out. If you think about Columbia, there was sort of this legitimate fear in the sense of like, oh, man, this thing could really tank. But it was really more, they were viewing it through what a critic would think, not a casual jazz listener would think. Okay. So they release the album. The critics don't like it, but the public loves it. Okay. Loves it. How much? So the album gets as high as number two on the Billboard 200. And this was a jazz album. Wow. Okay. Okay. It quickly went platinum, becoming the first jazz album to sell more than one million copies. Really? Yes. Wow. Wow. Okay, so you're probably thinking at this point, okay, Elliot, this is great. This is wonderful. Um, What does this have to do with illustration? Yeah, I'm I'm enjoying learning about Dave Brubeck, who, to my knowledge, was not an illustrator. Uh, He was an illustrator using sound, Todd. Okay, there you go. You're you're expanding my my brain here. (laughs) Okay, there was an artist, the designer... And the creator of the artwork on the front of this album, S. Neil Fujita, who is one of the illustrators that we are going to talk about today. And these one million albums that are sold 
suddenly means that there's one million households with a copy of Fujita's work in it. Oh, okay. Sweet. So that's a little impactful. Yeah, that, that says something, doesn't it? It does. So let's jump in and let's learn a little bit more about him. Okay, before we do that, why don't we take five and freshen up our drinks, huh? Oh, clever. I see what you did there. You know, all this talk about jazz is, uh, it's made me really thirsty. Um, okay. So I'm, I'm just going to go wash my hands uh, while you uh. grab the next round. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, sounds familiar, as usual. Well, it, Todd, all right. cleanliness is next to godliness, and far be it for me to soil the bar. Uh, we'll be back in a minute. Hey nerds, I'm Sarah, the Paper Nerd, and if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the paper fold where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my favorite topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, the Paper Fold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Hi, we want to take a moment to mention that if you're enjoying this episode, we have an archive of topics ranging from the Olympics to movie posters. Think Ghostbusters. Iconic images. Think Bigfoot. Punk music. The Ramones. Saturday morning cartoons. The Pink Panther. And failed products like OK Soda. Visit our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com for full episode notes and visuals the latest blog content, and to sign up for our newsletter. Follow us on social media. We can be found on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Find the links on our website or search using the phrase, two designers walk into a bar. Most importantly, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people like you find podcasts like this. And tell a friend about us. Send them a link to our podcast from your listening platform of choice. And, if you're inclined, buy our merchandise. Stickers, coasters, magnets, t-shirts. We're designers. We make good stuff, and it helps support the show. Get in touch. Use the contact form on our website, or send an email to hello at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. We read every message we get. Honest. And we're available for speaking gigs. Email us to learn more. Okay, now, back to the bar. So, Todd... As I mentioned earlier, we're getting back in. We want to talk a little bit about S. Neil Fujita. And this guy was really, really incredible. So we mentioned Dave Brubeck, no slouch uh, in the jazz world. So sells a million albums. And this goes back to what we were talking about with Jackson Pollock and Life Magazine. Yeah. And how... That article in Life really was this tipping point when abstract art started to get into everybody's living room. Because Life at the time, of course, was everywhere. 
right? That was the magazine. That was the Facebook or whatever you want to refer to it as of its time, right? That's what everybody was reading. Yeah. Good way to good way to put it. Yeah. 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 So life is happening and then you have this this album and it has again incredible artwork on it. So all of a sudden there is this new art style this sort of abstract, expressionist, funky, geometric, very colorful sort of art style that is coming into everybody's living rooms, courtesy of Dave Rubeck and Esniel Fujita, who um, both designed and illustrated this album. So again, he's a double mm-hmm. threat, right? A design illustrator, mm-hmm. as we've been talking about with these guys. Mm-hmm. So who was he? Where did he come from? Um, and what was he all about? So he was born in 1921. He was, he was born in Hawaii. His parents were Japanese immigrants. And this will come back up in a minute. Um, there's, there's a reason why um, this matters. But I just want to talk a little bit about this guy's bona fides before we get into how he got a million of what he had designed and illustrated uh, in everybody's uh, hi-fi cabinets, right? So he, in addition to being um, an illustrator and being a designer of album art, he also designed... Are you ready for this? Yeah. Okay, jump back. Okay. He's the one who designed the Today Show's rainbow logo. Really? The typeface for Billboard magazine. Okay. The Schubert Theater logo in New York. All right. Yeah, heard of that. Okay, but this is the big one. You ready? Yeah. The Godfather typeface and logo. No kidding, really. Among many other things. Yeah, so... Wow. Yeah, I mean, again, it's incredible to me how all of these folks we were talking about, how prolific they were, and how they just jumped from one thing to another, and they were really, really good at it. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Really incredible. Okay, so let's jump back in, and let's sort of figure out where this guy came from, and how he came to, to work with Dave Brubeck. So he was from uh, Hawaii, as I mentioned, but he comes to the mainland, comes to L.A. for college. And uh, so this is in the early 40s. And he comes to a place called Schonard Art Institute, although you may now know it as CalArts. CalArts, yeah, yeah, very famous. Yeah. So just as he arrives... World War II breaks out. And as I mentioned, because he, even though he is an American citizen, but he was born to Japanese immigrants, he gets pulled out of school and um, he's forced into one of the Japanese internment camps. Wow. So first he is in the Pomona Assembly Center that's outside of L.A. And then he was relocated to the Heart Mountain relocation center in Wyoming. Now, this sounds awful. It was certainly awful. But he ended up becoming the art director, believe it or not, of the camp newspaper at this internment camp. So he's, even while he's um, in federal prison for all intents and purposes, he's still able to do some design work. So how can he get out of this? Well, he can enlist in the army. So 
He really, yeah. So on January first, nineteen forty-three, he enlists in the army and he serves in a segregated regiment of Japanese American volunteers and draftees. But that's not all. So they ended up being the most decorated unit, U.S. unit in the war. I mean, wow. how amazing is this? I mean, what an incredible story. So then after that, after the war ends, now he, because he served in the military, remember when we talked about Leave it to Beaver? Remember how we talked about this post-World War II prosperity and why? Yep, he now had yep. the GI Bill. So yeah, he's so able he's to able return to, to school. school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and he figures everything out, finishes on the GI Bill. Okay, so he comes out of school. And he starts working at an ad agency in Philadelphia, N.W. Ayer and Son. And right. this was a, a very prominent uh, shop at the time. So this guy is just out of school. He's been in an, an internment prison. He's been through the war. Within the first three years of working for this ad agency, he was awarded um, an Art Directors Club gold medal for an ad he did for the Container Company of America. Hmm. I mean, how incredible is that? Yeah, that is. That is. Wow, that is incredible. Okay, so the reason I say all this is he was garnering a reputation, right? So how did he get to Columbia? How did he get to this very, very noteworthy label that enabled him to do some of the work he did? Yeah. So, um, Todd, you remember our friend at CBS, uh, William Golden, who we talked about earlier? The father of the eye. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, CBS, Columbia Broadcasting System. Mm -hmm. Um, So, Columbia, Columbia Records. So, William Golden notices this this young buck, this young upstart, notices his award-winning work, and uh, basically says, hey, you want to come work for me at... uh, Columbia make Records. Some, make you wanna... some record covers there. Yeah, yes, absolutely. That's right. What? <laughs> <laughs> I just imagine he called him S. Neil. So. <laughs> oh, okay. I guess he did. I mean, who's? <laughs> I wasn't in the room when the job offer was made. So yeah, let's say it was. So let's say he said that. Uh, <laughs> so uh, so anyway, so Columbia hires him in 1954. To lead the design department. So, like, he comes in and he's leading this department. So, remember Alex Steinweiss I mentioned earlier? He's the one who invented the, the, the record the jacket. Custom yeah, yeah, jacket. Yeah, yeah, the album art. Yeah, exactly. We'd all be, like, getting albums in trash bags or something now. Exactly. Well, like Frisbees, I think. You would just, like, say, hey, I want X. And then they would just, you know, hang That's... hang their arm out the window. Frisbee, <laughs> like, just th- toss it to you. Just toss it Hope to for you. the best. Yeah. So... This practice of this custom cover art had been established at CBS. And so Fujita was able to come in and he was able to build on that. Um, Why? Like, why was he given the green light to do this? Well, as we talked about earlier, there was this upstart label called Blue Note Mm -hmm. across town that was killing it. So there was this arms race that was happening because... Keep in mind, Columbia had Miles Davis. You know, they had obviously folks like Dave Brubeck. They weren't slouches when it came to the jazz game. And so the fact that Blue Note was outpacing them with the resources they had available, um, they obviously took notice of that, right? Right, right. So this is where things get interesting. Fujita was the first to commission painters, photographers, and illustrators 
to create cover art for Columbia's albums, okay? So when I say illustrators and painters, mm -hmm. I don't just mean people with broad commercial track records. So, I mean, he would go out and find abstract expressionist painters. He would go out and find leading photographers. One of them was, wait for it, mm -hmm. Ben Sean, oh, right? So this is, is the guy yeah. who we talked about earlier, who had influenced David Stone Martin. Yep. So um, another was uh, an up-and-coming illustrator you may have, mm. have heard of. Later did something iconic uh, for a certain artist in the world of music, a guy named... Uh, Milton Glazer. Glazer, Glazer, Glazer. Sounds familiar. Yeah, maybe he'll turn yeah. into something. Yeah, one would hope. One would hope. Um, but yeah, so he was one of the first people who gave Milton Glazer a chance to do something in the world of music. So again, pretty insightful in terms of recognizing talent. So Columbia's trying to keep up with these Blue Note records, album covers, and Fujita, while he was there, he designed close to 50 album covers. And for some of the folks that we had just mentioned a minute ago, like Dave Brubeck and Miles Davis, uh, Jazz Messengers, Charles Mingus, right. so all of these artists that were on Columbia, because this was much deeper pockets, much, much, you know, many, many more resources to sign some of these folks who were household names or were soon to becoming household names. And Fujita also at times, as we mentioned earlier, he would use his own colorful abstract paintings yeah. for art. Um, some of them, of course, appeared on Time Out, Gigi Grice's Modern Jazz Perspective, and Glenn Gould's self-titled album, uh, which we'll talk about in a moment, and the Mingus, uh, famous Mingus album, uh, um, like, and that's such a wonderful album. So in 57, 1957, Fujita left Columbia because he, I think, got fried. He got burned out. Yeah, he, yeah. he worked on these albums, you know, needed a change of pace. But then he um, rejoined the company a year later, <laughs> hung around for a few more years, and then left in 1960 to start his own firm. And joined up with a PR firm and created his design division within that, and that design division was called Ruder, Finn, and Fujita, mm -hmm. which later became just a Fujita Design. And that's really where he got into the book covers, like I mentioned earlier. So I mentioned The Godfather, of course, Mario Puzo. Um, if people don't know the book by name, of course, they'll know the movie. But he also did Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. So oh, um, and wow. Truman Capote, father of the Jack Kerouac zinger. Yep, uh, yep. If we go back to our earlier episode, that's not writing, that's typing. So, again, all of these threads are running through all of this. And when I think about his influence, before we jump into the Glenn Gould album, I really think of his work as influencing fabric design and fabric designers. So when I think of... Um, companies like Spoonflower and the abstract sort of patterns that they offer that you can buy this digitally printed fabric in bulk and do fun things with it like make pillows and stuff like that. I really think Fujita, unbeknownst probably to some of these folks, he's definitely an influence because I am sure some of these illustrators and artists probably grew up with Dave Brubeck or Glenn Gould albums sitting in their house. Uh, they might not yeah, have listened yeah. to them, but certainly they were exposed to them. And, uh, 
the illustrator Koivo, um, and, and we'll post a link to their work online. Um, again, very, very similar sort of aesthetic. So this trickle down is still definitely, definitely happening today. Um, and I just think his work is really expressive and really incredible. And even though it's very different from David Stone Martin and very different from Jim Flora, there's still something about this energy and color and flavor that definitely says jazz to me. Yeah, yeah it does. Yeah. Uh, it's very bold and... Um, I- I'm looking at some of his others that look more like block prints and not paintings. And they have the same bold shapes, um, bold use of color, um, really energetic. And uh, the guy's getting jazz, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's so fast. I, I almost, you know what, as we're sitting here talking about this, it makes me wonder if some of these guys... And, and this is a fairly recent thing to be talking about. I wonder if some of these guys had synesthesia in some way where, you hmm. know, they'll hear a certain sound and it turns into a certain color or something like that. Before it was labeled as synesthesia. Yeah. They yeah. Just feeling yeah. It. Yeah. I, I can't help but think that there was something going on, especially looking at Fujita's work. I mean, it is so... It's structured, yet it's so vibrant and abstract at the same time. It really strikes this incredible balance to me. So let's get into the Glenn Gould album. And again, we'll post this artwork on our website so that everybody knows what it is we're talking about here. So take five, Dave Brubeck. The Glenn Gould album art follows this same formula, essentially. You've got... Really, the top quarter uh, running across horizontally, that's white space. You have the artist's name really big and sort of this condensed um, black type, uh, in this case, Glenn Gould. You have the Columbia logo at the upper right corner, and then you have um, the track listings, essentially, underneath it. And there aren't any other musicians on this because Glenn Gould was a pianist, and so it's basically just... So, you know, it says in very, very tiny type under the the track listings. Uh, it's like Glenn Gould, and then like in very, very small type, pianist, <laughs> which I think is, I think, yeah, pst, hey, um, in case you were wondering. But um, I would argue that that's fine because the art itself, if you look smack dab running vertically in the middle of this art, is a very, very colorful piano keyboard. Yeah, yeah. Right. And it certainly is black and white. He's gone ahead and thrown um, some other colors in there. But the arrangement overall, it's really interesting to me because, gosh, we're, I don't even, Todd, I'll be honest with you, I'm a little bit stumped in terms of how to articulate this. It's sort of like um, croquet sticks in terms of these bands of colors on these natural tones meet. African tribal masks meets um, musical instruments like we talked about meets um, sort of um, Japanese bento boxes. It's it's true abstract expressionism. There's not a there's a touch of reality, but it really departs from it. 
Yes, it, very, very vibrant colors. It's almost, in a way, like stained glass, um, but very geometric. But it still feels very expressive. It doesn't feel rigid at all. And um, very brushy. It's very obvious these aren't solid areas of color. I would say the closest thing to it would maybe be some of these uh, black piano keys or something like that. But everything is very, very brushy, so it's obvious that there's underpainting going on and then there's a, a second color mm -hmm. that's getting mm -hmm. layered on top of it and it's really every color under the rainbow but that the mixing all happens in these very specific geometric areas and if you think about um music again you think about piano and you think about the the structure and the way glenn gould played I do think that this is a great combination of expression and constraint. And so, again, I think this is very, very true mm -hmm, to the mm -hmm. subject matter that um, the listener will encounter um, when they're playing this album and, and looking at this artwork. I just think it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. A lot of energy going on there. Yeah. So anyway, that, in a nutshell, is uh, S. Neil Fujita. Oh, very cool. Very cool. I love that example that he just said, um, Elliot, from Glenn Gould. And I actually have a favorite of uh, Neil Fujita's uh, album covers as well. And it's called, let me make sure I pronounce this correctly, Percussion Italiano. Um, okay. I think that if I look up at the translation, it means Italian percussion. <laughs> <laughs> it's by it's by a gentleman named Charles, uh, and I'm sorry, Charles, if I butcher your last name, uh, Magnante. Um, so obviously Italian, and um, this album cover it is wonderful shapes um, of photographs, flat color, drawing. It's allusions to um, wine bottles and corks and brushes, wow. and uh, it's great. It's it, um, it 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 looks like you know where South Park got their inspiration from, uh, but on a on a higher level. And this <laughs> the reason I I brought this together is we were talking um, in a previous episode about UPA style. And yeah, this yeah. really reminds me of UPA a lot, where the shapes kind of uh, don't necessarily have to contain the photo. Um, and um, there's a wonderful UPA piece that we'll post on our website as well called The Jaywalker, a 1956 short film that kind of will see a lot of inspiration uh, from all of these folks we've talked about today. Definitely. I I love that short film. And I think the reason I love it is, um, for a lot of the reasons we talked about, it's really, um, it's just the right amount of style, just the right amount of color, just the right amount of information. And uh, yeah, the video is, is really, really fun because it's sort of like jazz meets the public service announcement. Right, right, right. <laughs> and um uh, I don't know. Should I give Should I give away the the secret to that to, uh, for our listeners? Uh, that uh, oh sure. Should I? Go, okay, well, guy, yeah. Okay. Go ahead. All right. So the guy is dead. 
<laughs> well, Todd, did you did did you know they based the movie The Sixth Sense on this short? Really, I didn't know that. That uh, uh, did you just you got me right? Okay, I, I owe you a drink. I you. All right, I owe you a drink. Uh, you know, you, totally you, got, got, there, you got there before I did. Right, Absolutely. Right. Okay. Well, as long as you're buying, I think it's time that we, without haste, made our way across uh, across the room back to the bar. And, uh, yeah. And I'll, I'll let you uh, enjoy the pleasure of uh, buying me the next uh, round. Yes. All right. I will do that. And we'll see everyone next time right here around the bar. So, Jim, we got a problem with our podcast. Right. Nobody says it correctly. No. Some people say how to fix it. Or how do you fix it? But think of it like this. Whatever the problem, we're in this together. How do we fix it? How How do do we we fix fix it? it? Yeah. How do we fix it? The Solutions Show. From the political to the personal. Practical ideas for creative listeners. How do we fix it? How do we fix it? Ideas that work. That's your radio voice, Richard. Oh, well, I know. (laughs) I love it. I couldn't do it to save my life. Two Designers Walk Into a Bar is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information about our show or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy, visit evergreenpodcasts.com.